The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Reaping the Rewards of Innovative Care in CLL, from Targeted Strategies to Cellular Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GUR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. Thank you very much for those who are joining us here this morning. It's the last day of the meeting and uh, many folks are already on the plane. Um, and uh, nevertheless, uh, there is still an important topic to discuss, which uh, has to do with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And I'm told that this topic has never really been discussed uh, much at the tandem meeting before in this format. So this is a first. Um, Today we have myself, I'm from City of Hope in uh, Los Angeles, California, and uh, Dr. Allen from uh, Cornell in New York. So, of course, there's been a lot of therapeutic progress in uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which has been recognized by leading U.S. and European uh, Union groups across disease uh, subtypes. And, uh, for example, in the lower right corner, the table which is a little bit easier to read, um, uh, the recommended regimens for treatment of CLL uh, by NCCN. And um, as you can see, there is really a limited role for chemoimmunotherapy these days. It has been completely replaced by novel target agents. And uh, there is also not a whole lot of uh, difference between patients who have high-risk disease, such as TP53 aberration, or patients with comorbidities, because uh, all of these regimens are quite well tolerated. And of course, we anticipate additional approvals of targeted agents in this space. And uh, ultimately, these strategies have eclipsed all the strategies such as chemoimmunotherapy and for sure, allogeneic stem cell transplant. These are some targeted therapies which are approved in uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia now. There is um, an expectation for zanobrutinib based on uh, our phase three sequoia study, which was reported recently. Uh, and um, also maybe some expectation for pirtabrutinib, a non-covalent PTK inhibitor, which has shown efficacy uh, after, um, uh, after ibrutinib or calabrutinib in that setting. Um, there are also BC, other BCL2 inhibitors in development by several companies. And of course, um, Idolalisib and Duvelisib are approved in CLL based on randomized control study results. Uh, and recent ODAC um, has not changed that necessarily. So the recent ODAC, which, uh, um, which focused on PI3K inhibitors, uh, stressed the importance of randomized control studies for future approvals of uh, agents which belong to this class of drugs. However, despite all of these advances, uh, there is more work that needs to be done. The real-world data suggests that many patients do, do not receive risk factors stratification, and that uh, refers to FISH testing for high-risk abnormalities, complex karyotypes, bicytogenetic testing, as well as IGHV mutational status testing. That is particularly non-prevalent uh, across community sites um, in patients with CLL. So we will go ahead now and talk about the transformed CLL landscape, and I would like to invite uh, Dr. Allen to inform us about targeted therapies in CLL. 
Thank you, Dr. Danilov, and uh, welcome, uh, everyone, and thank you for, for the opportunity to talk to you about uh, this exciting topic. Uh, and we're going to look at the transform CLL landscape. How do you select treatments? Uh, how do you sequence these treatments? And how do you combine them? Um, and full disclosure, I, I typically am a lymphoma physician, CLL doctor, and I don't do a lot of cellular therapy, so I'm going to take the aspect of, of small molecule targeted approaches, uh, and Dr. Danilov will talk to you about the cellular therapies. So here's all the phase, big phase three studies that have uh, been performed showing the evidence supporting the use of these targeted agents in treatment-naive and relapse refractory CLL. Uh, you can see ibrutinib has kind of the uh, most data, the longest-term data, uh, supporting its use in, in frontline and uh, CLL uh, in randomized fashions against BR, FCR, as well as chlorambucil. Acalabrutinib has gone head-to-head -head against chlorambucil in a frontline setting and has its approvals there, as well as in relapse settings against adelalisib uh, and or BR, I'm sorry, or BR, uh, in relapse settings and shown uh, PFS improvements there. And then Xanabrutinib has data uh, in frontline setting with Sequoia. Um, in, in high-risk subgroups as well, but in, in all patients against BR. So they've gone against decent competitors, and all of these BTK inhibitors have come out on top um, uh, in terms of progression-free survival, and ibrutinib has some overall survival benefit, but it was also these studies were done in a different era, and we can talk about that later with questions, et cetera. Uh, the BCL2 inhibitor, the only one that we currently have FDA approved, is venetoclax, and that has uh, approvals based in relapse settings as frontline settings based on CLL14 and the Murano study. And this, for the first time, these studies actually introduced fixed duration or finite duration therapy for CLL patients and allowing patients to actually get off of uh, off of treatment based on the unique aspect of venetoclax being able to achieve very deep remissions MRD negativity, and we'll talk more about that. So updated evidence confirms the benefit of these targeted agents and, and, and points to us in new directions of where this field is going and how we are going to use these drugs, and we'll review that here. So as a reminder, ibrutinib from the Resonate 2 data was recently updated uh, with now the longest follow-up of, of any of these molecules in this setting with eight years of median follow-up about. Uh, still, a median progression-free survival has not been met at that time point. And uh, at this eight-year mark, about you know, um, 57 or so percent of patients remain progression-free. Uh, we know at the previous kind of seven-year mark uh, that close to half of the patients remained on drug over six years. Uh, this is a little bit less now. Uh, it's in the 40% range who still remain on drug. But it, it speaks to the fact that if you can be on these agents and, and get beyond the initial toxicities, uh, particularly with ibrutinib, you are likely going to do very well. And I can tell you from personal experience of having patients five, six years out, um, most of these patients are having zero toxicities at this time point. And so uh, it's very likely this curve can, can continue and, and maybe flatten out. And there's going to be a subset of patients who have extraordinarily durability, uh, durable control of their disease. Uh, you can look at the chlorambucil arm. This is just more of, uh, the, you know, we know ibrutinib is better than a monotherapy chlorambucil in frontline CLL. Um, and this has a sustained PFS benefit. Also, an overall survival benefit was noted in this study despite crossover to the ibrutinib. 
And uh, what this study also showed is that many high-risk features like IGHV uh, mutational status and deletion 11Q, most of these uh, higher risk features seem to have been overcome a little bit, uh, if not fully, with ibrutinib continual use. Alliance has shown very similar results, and this is against a more reasonable comparator against BR. This is looking at ibrutinib versus ibrutinib rituximab versus bendamustine rituximab. Uh, this was initially published a few years back, and then uh, Genwick uh, published this as an update at this year's of ASH uh, with some new insights and analyses being performed. But what we see here is that um, this supports the monotherapy use of ibrutinib. Uh, rituximab does not seem to add much to it in terms of progression-free survival, response rates, MRD rates, CR rates, um, and I think established kind of what we do in practice and, and use BTK inhibitors as a monotherapy. Uh, this, you, there, you will see with some other data where we can have questions about this and how do we incorporate potential anti-CD20s, but for the most part, uh, rituximab is not seen to seemingly doing much for our patients. And this clearly has a progression-free survival benefit over bendamustine rituximab, uh, as uh, this also allowed 17P deleted patients in this study, so we have some interesting data from there. And um, uh, uh, particularly, uh, those patients with P53 disruptions clearly did much better with ibrutinib, which is kind of the standard of care. And then when you look at the ibrutinib arms, <clears throat> there was actually no progression-free survival difference in those P53 disrupted patients. Small numbers enrolled, but 20-something-odd uh, patients, and, and the outcomes are the same. And so, again, further evidence that BTK inhibitors can overcome some of these poor risk features that have historically identified a patient that's going to have inferior progression-free survival or even overall survival. This is what I was talking about regarding possible uh, uh, using a better anti-CD20 antibody, and this is the Elevate-TN study. This is looking at a calibrutinib versus a calibrutinib obinutuzumab versus chlorambucil obinutuzumab. And you can see here that um, uh, the acalabrutinib arms clearly benefit uh, the patients and have an improved progression-free survival uh, over chlorambucil-based treatment. Uh, there was no overall survival benefit in this study. And ultimately, in a post-hoc kind of uh, retrospective or, I guess, secondary analysis, this was not a primary endpoint uh, to be analyzed, uh, there was actually a, a small statistical significant benefit by adding obinutuzumab to uh, acalabrutinib in patients. With that said, it's still modest, um, and, uh, um, you know, how do we incorporate this in the era of COVID and, and you know, uh, the number needed to treat with, with anti-CD20 to get this modest benefit? Um, does that benefit outweigh those risks? Uh, remains to be seen. It's, it's a debate and, and something we can have conversations about and something we talk with our patients about. But one thing that came out of this study is that the high-risk patients, so P53 disrupted patients, didn't seem to benefit from the anti-CD20. So if you're thinking of, if, you, if your one argument is to use the drug for the highest risk patients, um, it doesn't seem to be able to overcome some of those factors, and they don't have an improved outcome necessarily. So uh, again, it, lower risk patients seem to do much better and, and benefit uh, potently from, from the anti-CD20. Here's the Murano data, or I'm sorry, the CL14 data. This is the venetoclaxobinutuzumab, which puts uh, venetoclaxobinutuzumab on the map in frontline CLL. This is an uh, important study because it was actually uh, one year of treatment, 
and uh, patients are off of therapy uh, regardless of a response in NMRD negativity. But this study has been updated to four years uh, over last summer and uh, four four years median follow-up with a progression-free survival of 74%, which compares historically favorably to what we see with ibrutinib. Um, One thing that started to come out in this study with longer-term follow-up is that patients with higher-risk features like deletion 17P or IGHV unmutated uh, status do have inferior progression-free survivals. Those with deletion 17P, P53 disruption have a uh, PFS of about four years. Those with an IGHV unmutated status have a PFS of about five years. Uh, With that said, uh, they're off of drug for three and four years respectively, and so um, there's also half of the patients who are still uh, progression-free at those time points, and, and there's subsets of these patients that are probably going to do very well. And, and so, you know, even though we notice that they are having inferior PFS, uh, the question remains, what do those retreatments look like? What does that second PFS look like? And, um, you know, that's where some of the research in the field is kind of trying to address some of these questions, and these patients are being followed uh, extensively, prospectively, and looking at these retreatment responses as time goes on. So we'll see this over time, but we need, again, obviously, further, further follow-up and maturation of the data. So can uh, novel combinations drive deep, durable responses uh, in high-risk CLL? So the answer is, is yes, uh, they, they, they can. And so we've, we're starting to, to gain uh, knowledge in this space. Um, and the, one of the big questions that's emerging with uh, uh, new technologies is how deep is, is the definition of MRD? What, what does that mean? Uh, technically speaking, in all of these clinical trials that you'll see, 10 to the minus 4, 1 in 10,000 uh, mononuclear cells in the peripheral blood uh, that are CLL cells uh, will, will dictate MRD negativity if you're below that threshold. Um, but with next-generation sequencing um, uh, technologies, we can actually get to one in a million. And uh, we have emerging data that if you can get below this deeper mark, your outcomes actually may be more improved than those patients who are at 10 to the minus 4. And so this definition continues, continues to evolve, and um, it, I think it may come into play, especially as we have data ma- uh, maturing to identify potentially maybe cured patients or effectively cured patients or those who may need one round of treatment and, and may have a remission for 10-plus years. So that may be a mark that you need to achieve to have that long-term outcome. That remains to be seen. These are studies are ongoing. Most studies that are looking at MRD are doing kind of flow-based assays, which is the 10 to the minus 4, as well as the next-generation sequencing assays. Uh, And so we can see these comparisons and and really understand how well patients are going to do. Um, The initial experience uh, of this is is promising. So we know with FCR, uh, when we've gone back and looked at uh, samples, stored samples that uh, using next generation sequencing techniques, we've seen the same story. Those who are deeper do better. Uh, same with venetoclax, with benetuzumab, and, and uh, now combinations of F- FCR and, and BTK inhibitors, etc. So it's an evolving story, but very interesting and um, uh, a moving target currently. But what's important, though, is that in combination therapies, you can get very deep remissions. 
Um, these are all venetoclax-based treatments in all the clinical trials you can see on the x-axis there that have been, um, you know, have decent follow-up maturation, kind of met primary endpoints thus far. And uh, you can see extraordinarily high rates of peripheral blood MRD negativity uh, in, in patients getting venetoclax-based combinations plus or minus anti-CD20. And so uh, that's the other question is if you're using a BTK and, a, and, a, and venetoclax, do you need the anti-CD20? That it, it doesn't. Uh, remains to be seen. Some of these studies are currently accruing that are going to help answer us in terms of a randomized fashion uh, of doublets without anti-CD20 and triplets with it. Uh, so we'll, we'll see that data uh, come out, but right now it's all speculation, but you know, maybe you can see some suggestion here that these triplets on the far right might have uh, a slightly higher rates of MRD negativity. Uh, again, how does that translate clinically long-term uh, remains to be seen and something we need to understand better. But uh, in the CLO14 data, you can see uh, that MRD negativity bodes well. Any, any treatment uh, in CLL that involves stopping seemingly uh, has uh, correlated with those patients being MRD negative having better uh, progression-free survivals. Uh, sometimes it doesn't always translate to an overall survival benefit and, and not necessarily a surrogate for that, but I, I truly believe most of the data uh, is strongly suggestive that it is a surrogate for progression-free survival. So this is a target to attain, especially in patients that are trying to stop treatment. If you're going to use a continuous therapy BTK inhibitor, MRD is irrelevant. It does not matter. Patients who get MRD negative are, is one very rare, usually many years later. Um, but we don't stop those patients typically, and uh, uh, those who achieved it um, on a continuous therapy do just as well as those patients who remain MRD positive. So it's really a, a concept for fixed duration, stopping treatment type of uh, uh, paradigm. And ultimately here, this data shows that uh, what we can see is that with venetoclaxobinituzumab, you can have deep remission, 60% of patients getting an MRD negative status in the bone marrow, which I think is the strongest hallmark of true clearance of the disease from, from the body. Um, the peripheral blood can be a little bit easier to clear with, with the anti-CD20. So this is just an example of how we might use MRD uh, analyses and, and how they were done in clinical trials. And, free, and frankly, they are done serially. Uh, and you can get a lot of information from serial MRD assays. With that said, uh, it's, you know, most physicians are not checking MRD at all. Uh, these clinical trials are all designed not to incorporate an MRD result into a decision, and thus uh, the value of it has yet to be truly uh, realized, basically, in terms of how we manage our patients. But there's emerging data that the rate of kill of the CLL cells and the, the time that you can get to an MRD negative state matters, and it might actually help dictate how long you need treatment for uh, and or the likelihood of being MRD negative at the end of some fixed duration, uh, as well as understanding the kinetics of that cell kill 
uh, may help us understand at, at one point in the future if we extend therapy for additional six months or a year and try to convert those patients who have a decreasing MRD status at these certain time points. So um, uh, remains important, uh, but unfortunately most of the studies that I showed you do not use the data in terms of stopping a patient. Everyone stopped treatment regardless of what that MRD result is, and that's kind of the next level of where we're moving towards. This is just, there's studies that, many studies have actually incorporated MRD decision-making in how we manage our patients. This is just one of the large ones. This is the phase two Captivate study. Uh, both primary endpoints of the two cohorts have been published now, um, and it's a somewhat complicated study. They have two cohorts, MRD cohort, where you get three cycles of ibrutinib lead-in, 12 cycles of combination, and then you are randomized uh, based on your MRD status at the end of that combination therapy. Those who are MRD negative get uh, ibrutinib versus placebo. Those who are MRD positive continue on ibrutinib or combination therapy for an additional two, up to two years. This primary endpoint was one-year disease-free survival. The fixed duration cohort is the same treatment, but everyone stops regardless of an outcome uh, in terms of MRD. And so uh, this data continues to mature. Uh, we will see continual updates yearly over time, and now median follow-up is getting out to close to three over three years, uh, which is now almost about two-plus years off of therapy because they were on treatment for about 15 cycles. Um, but what you can see here is I, I plus V uh, has high rates of MRD negativity, and uh, this occurs in the peripheral blood and bone marrow. And uh, uh, this is, uh, we see some signal here that the higher risk disease actually has improved MRD negativity rates. Those with IGHV unmutated status do seem to have a, a slightly higher rate of MRD negativity than those lower risk IGHV mutated patients. Um, but we still see uh, great MRD negativity across the board for the vast majority of patients. And uh, it's really the lower risk patients who don't seem to get there quite as high of a rate. And that brings in the question do they need additional treatment? Is there something we can add on to, to deepen those responses? You can see with time goes on, and many of these studies have shown this, that as time goes on with combination therapy, the MRD negativity rates do improve over time. They're probably is a plateau. Uh, some, some of the studies that have looked at up to three years of treatment have show, you know, you know, about a plateau at that second, third year or so. So everybody's not going to get there by continual therapy. And obviously what's important is to stop treatment. So we don't want people on these drugs necessarily indefinitely, but uh, there's probably a sweet spot in there in, in identifying, maximizing an outcome for all of our patients. And uh, I think we're honing in on it uh, at, at this uh, time point in, in, in our research. So GLOW is the phase three study that was performed that will potentially have ibrutinib venetoclax be clinically available and FDA approved. Uh, this was a fixed duration approach, uh, same concept, three cycles ibrutinib lead in to debulk, re re uh, remove and mitigate that tumor lysis risk, and then 12 cycles of combination treatment. Um, the MR, uh, MRD was assessed in this, and the progression-free survival clearly uh, benefited over the chlorambucil of benetuzumab. This was in older patients. DEL17P patients were excluded from this study. What we can see here is that the MRD negativity rates are very high, and what important is that they're not just high, but they're also very, very deep. So you can see the dark blue is less than 10 to the minus 5. Uh, this was using a high-sensitive flow assay um, the, uh, that, that was slightly different that has a sensitivity threshold right around at 1 in 100,000. But uh, those patients who achieve that income outcome uh, have very, very deep uh, remissions, and that's very important to, to know.
So triplets are coming around. I think you know these are these studies have been done. They're you know for the most part small, twenty to thirty patient studies, uh, and uh, like I said, the MRD rates seem you know very impressive and and. Uh, um, but we've got a l- large panel of phase three clinical trials looking at combinations against triplets and doublets, et cetera, as well as continuous therapy. So uh, there's important studies currently accruing right now that are going to help us. But, you know, we need five years before we have kind of the first, you know, top line data coming out uh, in terms of understanding if there's going to be a winner, uh, winner approach. One thing to think about, though, is uh, high risk patients and how do we manage them because they are still probably an unmet need. Uh, that will potentially fail these drugs throughout their lifetime, Uh, those particularly being complex carrier type and deletion 17P. This was the CLL2-GIVE study looking at 41 patients with DEL17P, the largest prospective study with these combination therapies being done. Importantly, we see high rates of MRD negativity, particularly if you achieve a CR, that is a strong surrogate for having an MRD negativity state. Um, and for the most part at the two-year PFS, uh, mind you, patients were on therapy for about 15 months and could continue on if they didn't achieve that MRD negative state. Uh, looks great. With that said, you do see patients falling off this curve uh, about a year and a half or so after treatment stops. Um, and importantly here is that these patients who were progressing, uh, the small numbers, actually were in CRs and MRD negative states. And so uh, it brings in the question if these high-risk patients uh, are the right ones to stop treatment? Should we use combination therapy, get them into a very deep remission, but then maintain them on some therapy like a BTK inhibitor, et cetera, uh, uh, to minimize toxicities and to lock in that response? Remains to be seen. I think uh, that remains a big question in the field. Uh, this was recent published uh, at AACR uh, looking at the Captivate data and the MRD rates specifically in the high-risk patients. Uh, and as you can see, those with um, uh, high-risk features have her- very high rates of MRD negativity, maybe uh, slightly higher than those with lower risk in the peripheral blood and bone marrow. Again, the sensitivity of this uh, B-cell receptor signaling to ibrutinib-based therapy seems to potentially be playing a role here. And um, uh, the 17P deleted patients are also performing very well. Uh, numerically on the right there in the bone marrow, they are lower, but that uh, is still a small number of patients, only about 20 patients or so. So it's hard to put much stock, and we saw from the CLL2-GIVE, is that they actually uh, perform very well and have very similar rates of MRD negativity in the bone marrow. What's important, obviously, outside of just response rates is how you do long-term and progression-free survival. And you can see here very similar progression-free survival in those patients with high-risk features uh, who stop treatment compared to those without high-risk features. And, um, you know, maybe the DEL17P patients uh, looking like they could potentially separate with later time points. But, uh, again, very small numbers, too early to say, and we need to follow these patients up further uh, as time goes on. Uh, to, to really understand how to manage them specifically. Fortunately, if they are progressing, they are being salvaged. They are not dying. Uh, they're not transforming. They, they seem to be getting to subsequent therapies because the overall survival is very flat and looks very, very good despite having these high-risk features. Um, just important to note, obviously, the issue with continuous therapies and long-term therapies are toxicities with these drugs. Uh, BTKIs are known to have toxicities with AFib, arthralgias, uh, infections, hypertension, bleeding. Um, all of these issues prevent long-term use in many patients. Fortunately, with second-generation drugs, we might have improved uh, uh, toxicity profiles and, and be able to keep patients on longer. Venetoclax has TLS, GI 
events, uh, myelosuppression, as well as infections. And we're, we're getting better at, at dealing with these, but I think um, uh, we can be stronger. So just in the last few minutes here, sequencing targeted agents is increasingly important. Uh, we have good prospective data to understand uh, salvaging uh, BTK failures with venetoclax. We have less prospective data looking at the reverse, but we've gone to real-world evidence to understand this, and we can see that you can salvage a venetoclax uh, progressing patient who got that prior to a BTK um, uh, to, to respond to that uh, reverse uh, uh, sequence. So venetoclax, then BTK. So uh, I think we all feel confident that we can do that now, and it doesn't limit us our use of venetoclax or benetuzumab frontline. It's kind of dealer's choice. There's pros and cons of these different approaches that the physician will have with their the patient, patient preferences, tumor, uh, and, and uh, disease bio, biology, et cetera, and characteristics. So we do know that after you've progressed uh, in the Murano and relapse settings, those, uh, important to note, in Murano, very few patients actually ever had a BTK inhibitor in this relapsed refractory uh, study. And you can see here uh, that those patients um, who got a BTKI in subsequent arms, you can see the response rates are very high, uh, regardless of what you got before, whether it was venetoclax or whether it was uh, bendamustine or rituximab. Important to note in just the last few minutes here, uh, last minute or so, is that as a doctor who doesn't do cellular therapy and who sees my patients, you know, potentially relapsing on these drugs, we continue to have new small molecule inhibitors being able to stretch out another several years uh, without needing more toxic treatments like aloes and CAR T-cells. And, and Pirtabrutinib is one example of this. This is a reversible BTK inhibitor that can overcome BTK-mutated uh, CLL and, and get responses and durable PFS in these patients. It also works in wild-type uh, disease. So th this drug has potential to disrupt the entire space, potentially. Um, we see high response rates in very heavily pretreated chemo kind of re double refractory patients, et cetera, uh, impressive progression-free survivals, and uh, more importantly, really impressive safety. You know, very few grade three, four toxicities of this drug, um, and uh, we are understanding how to use it. We do understand resistant mechanisms. It is a potential problem uh, for patients that are heavily pretreated, but, uh, you know, this is another ability to sequence another therapy and not use cellular therapies necessarily um, that are well-tolerated, that can get an additional two years potentially, and maybe even longer as we move these drugs up and, and use them in less heavily pretreated patients. So here are the take-home points. Uh, high risk continues to evolve. That definition continues to evolve, and how best to treat them is remains to be elucidated. Um, however, we are using targeted agents. It is the standard of care uh, uh, for high-risk DIL-17P complex carry type patients is to use targeted agents. And then, um, you know, when treated with continuous BTKI, outcomes for many high-risk features seemingly have improved and kind of gotten onto the same uh, playing field as those without. And while PFS is shorter, we, we do have to balance stopping treatment in these patients and understand what does retreatment look like. So just because PFS may be shorter in a fixed-duration approach does not necessarily mean that it's not right for these higher-risk patients, and current evidence is not showing any detriment to overall survival. All right, now I'll turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Danilov, who will take you through the cellular therapy approaches. Thank you, Dr. Allen. So historically, allogeneic stem cell transplant has been used in treatment of CLL, 
And uh, this is really historic, yeah? Um, as a CLL doctor who has been doing this for about 12 years now, I can really count on, uh, um, on maybe on both hands, uh, on, on the fingers on both my hands, how many patients I sent for Alice stem cell transplant. And that's because I've been lucky to really practice most of my time in, in an era where uh, targeted agents have grown up and also where novel cellular therapy options have become available. But this is what we typically are used to seeing with uh, the types of curves that we, we typically see with allogeneic stem cell transplant and CLL. Um, Long-term disease-free survival, this is for deletion 17P CLL specifically, which typically is the type of patients who undergoes uh, Alice stem cell transplant. Uh, Three-year overall survival in PFS of 44 and 37% respectively here. And uh, progressive disease at four years is 34%. So the um, relapses are still pretty common in CLL. And um, since, since then, since uh, we, we have actually made some um, headway with novel strategies like haploidentical stem cell transplant has uh, made significant advances in the field. And then uh, the retrospective analysis uh, cohort of 117 patients was, uh, was actually published two years ago in CLL specifically, uh, determining that in, in general terms, haploidentical stem cell transplant is feasible in patients with CLL. And uh, you can see here, again, very similar numbers for five-year overall and progression-free survival of uh, 40 and 30 percent, um, uh, non-relapse mortality of about 44 percent. So overall, similar data with HLA margitonus. And of course, the next question is, how does ALA stem cell transplant perform in patients who have previously been treated with targeted therapies? And uh, this was also uh, summarized in a recent publication where the key point is uh, basically that prior use of novel agent does not appear to affect the safety or efficacy of allogeneic stem cell transplant. So you can proceed with ALO following ibrutinib, venetoclax, and other targeted agents. So this is the table that I put together, which pulls four largest studies uh, using Alice stem cell transplant and CLL, and this is what you typically expect. Of course, every center would say that they are by far the best center in terms of performing allogeneic uh, stem cell transplant. But um, And you do get some range in numbers here, but overall what you can expect is overall survival of about 50 to 60% at six years, non-relapse mortality roughly 20%. And these are the rates of GVH. And note, no, notice that chronic GVHD is pretty high in patients with CLL, um, close to 60% in some studies. So that's one of the problems in uh, CLL and allogeneic stem cell transplant. So multiple um, groups have tried to come up with um, um, guidelines how to proceed with allogeneic stem cell transplant in CLL. This is one example, EBMT position paper, where um, uh, CLL, uh, with, which is resistant to chemotherapy and novel therapy, um, is the type of disease which should be strongly considered for allogeneic stem cell transplant. This is, of course, a few years ago, four years ago now, before the advent of cellular therapies, before the advent of CAR T cells. Uh, NCCN guidelines still mention um, 
uh, our stem cell transplant. And here you can see it in the right lower corner. This is a slide for patients without deletion 17P or TP53 mutation. So stem cell transplant is really one of the last results there, resorts there. Um, and in patients with deletion 17P, it's a little bit more centered here um, uh, for second line and subsequent therapy. And typically, it is true still that those would be the patients which um, undergo allogeneic stem cell transplant, as they are also patients who tend to progress faster uh, through targeted therapies like Dr. Allen has shown. And uh, just to briefly mention, autologous stem cell transplant, of course, has no role in therapy of CLL at this time. So as evidence accumulates, will CAR T-cell therapy uh, play a role in CLL? And this is a brief overview. I don't think this audience needs this overview, but basically you pull some uh, leukocytes from patients, infect them with a the virus, and put them back. Um, Transcend CLL04 study, which was recently published, is the study which investigated cell therapy in uh, uh, patients with CLL, relapsed refractory, specifically lysa cell. And uh, the study was led by my colleague at City of Hope, Dr. Tani Siddiqui, and uh, here, is, here, is some, here is some summary data. Uh, the study enrolled uh, mainly patients who, who failed or were ineligible for brutantizing kinase inhibitors, who had high-risk disease, failed at least two prior lines of therapy, and um, uh, enrolled some patients with double refractory CLL to both ibrutinib and venetoclax. Here is the overall response rate. In, among the total of 22 patients, you can see that overall response is very high, 82% at both those levels, and um, um, uh, basically uh, orange indicates stable disease and green indicates progressive disease, but most of it is blue. And uh, this regimen was also associated with high frequency of undetectable MRD in blood and marrow. That's the graph on the right side, 75 and 65 percent respectively. These are the curves. Um, on the left is um, uh, response duration, which uh, um, non-reached median. And uh, you can see the blue curve here is all patients, and the orange curve is the double refractory subgroup. Double refractory now meaning, again, BTK inhibitor and venetoclax refractory. And you can see that, uh, 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 that refractoriness to both these classes of agents did not matter. So both patient types of patients respond well to CAR T cells. And uh, the median, uh, median progression-free survival is uh, somewhere on the order of 18 months at this point, which is shown on the right graph. But nevertheless, for this highly refractory group of patients, this is a very, um, uh, very strong, very, very good data. Uh, the adverse events are what we typically see with CAR T cells. What you can see here uh, all grade CRS 74% and uh, grade 3 CRS uh, 9%. Um, so, uh, basically, very similar between patients who um, had or had not uh, failed both classes of agents, BTK and BCL2 inhibitor, in the past. And um, uh, overall, neurotoxicity was um, also present with grade 3 about 20%. Uh, CRS is managed as per usual, tesalizumab, corticosteroids, and most patients received both. 
So uh, the question is also, can you add ibrutinib to uh, CAR T cells? Uh, there is uh, uh, some body of preclinical data which suggests that adding ibrutinib may enhance responses to CAR T cell therapy. Ibrutinib is essentially a multi-kinase inhibitor which has some immun immunomodulatory properties which has been shown in multiple model systems. And uh, also there is uh, uh, a suggestion that ibrutinib may mitigate some of the adverse events of CAR T cells. And what you can see on the right, uh, comparing the two cohorts, uh, whether patients received concurrent ibrutinib or no concurrent ibrutinib. And of course the number of patients is pretty small, so it's difficult to make any uh, solid conclusions out of this. But, um, you know, on, on the left side, there is a little bit more dark blue and no green or purple, uh, which gives us a little bit of a signal that maybe a combination of ibrutinib and CAR T cells may result in um, improved responses compared to CAR T cells alone, which is the bar graph on the right side. Um, um, this is basically showing progression-free survival depending on uh, uh, response. Uh, complete response is shown in red and partial response is shown in green. And as expected, the, the better you respond, the better PFS you will have. Um, this is again uh, showing uh, uh, responses in patients who received uh, both ibrutinib and CAR-T um, in, um, um, in CLL, and the um, response rate is 95%. So a little bit, again, like I said, a little bit higher than CAR-T cell uh, monotherapy, and responses are seen in both those levels. Very high rate of undetectable MRD, both in blood and the bone marrow, of um, 86%. Again, the differences are fairly minor. The population, uh, patient population is fairly small, so still hard to know whether this uh, will um, result in a standard of care change. But certainly there is uh, quite a number of trials investigating brutantizing kinase inhibitors in combination with CAR T cells. And this is duration of response and progression-free survival. Again, a small patient population, but very encouraging data here. So um, uh, finally, one of the uh, key uh, complications of uh, CLL, which is associated with high mortality, is Richter's syndrome. So Richter's syndrome is, uh, uh, when it's diagnosed, the expected, uh, expected longevity is about one year. And uh, that's particularly true in patients who develop Richter's on uh, novel therapies, which becomes the majority of patients now. We reported some data a few years ago at ASCO where overall survival in patients with Richter's who progressed on ibrutinib is about three months. So, of course, the majority of Richter's is um, aggressive DLBCL histology, and uh, it is a natural question to ask whether CAR T cells will be effective in this particular setting. This is luckily a fairly rare complication uh, so not a whole lot of data, but here is one uh, publication from Ohio State, Adam Kitai, uh, which demonstrated that essentially uh, all patients with Richter's uh, can respond to CAR T cell therapy. Um, 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 uh, five patients achieved complete response and three patients out of eight achieved partial response. So this is, uh, CAR T cell is uh, a promising therapy not only in CLL, but also in um, um, Richter's transformation, which is a feared complication of CLL. 
Uh, next uh, question is, well, should we say if, if patients undergo CAR T-cell therapy and they achieve partial response or even if they achieve a complete response, is there a role for uh, consolidative uh, stem cell transplant post-CAR T? And the, the, the answer is we don't know. You know, there are some issues, of course, post-CAR T. About 30% of patients may develop prolonged cytopenias, which may complicate uh, future therapies and uh, clinical trial eligibility, as well as allogeneic stem cell transplant. So, you know, it really depends on donor availability, patients' age and comorbidities, and um, availability of other treatment options, whether standard or clinical trial. So this, this question is really, there is no answer to this question yet, but something which uh, may need to be investigated in the future. So how do we think about cellular therapies um, in, uh, in therapy of CLL today? Of course, no CAR T cells have been um, approved so far in treatment of uh, uh, CLL. But I would say that um, for, for my patients, um, I, I, would, um, I, I would go out of my way to, um, to, to put them on a CAR T cell cellular therapy study before proceeding with allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, so if we, if we see a patient who developed resistance to BTK inhibitors and who has deletion 17P, those are typically patients who will not do so well. However, even these patients have some emerging alternatives. Non-covalent BTKs, which can work for some time. So the new field also is BTK degraders, so protein, proteolysis assisting chimeras, protox, which... Um, uh, I expect it to work pretty well in, um, in uh, BTK refractory disease. Uh, multiple trials with these agents are ongoing. Then finally, there are bispecific antibodies. They haven't made uh, such progress in CLL as they have in other lymphomas. However, these studies are also ongoing, both with epcaritamab and uh, masonotuzumab. Um, and uh, the early data is very promising. But nevertheless, this could be a group of patients where CAR T-cell therapy can be considered, particularly for younger patients. And then we have this really unmet need of uh, double refractory BTK inhibitor, BCL2 inhibitor resistant disease. Um, we still have PI3K inhibitors in that setting, um, although we know that they don't work for too long. And this is really a patient population where CAR T-cell therapy or allogeneic stem cell transplant for younger patients should be strongly considered. Again, these patients still have these emerging alternatives, which I talked about now. Now, the question is, we all talk about CD19 targeting CAR T-cells, but of course there are other emerging CAR T-cells with novel targets, such as CD20, which was presented by the Hutch um, uh, group, uh, Mazia Shadman and Brian Till, at this meeting with good responses, including in, in, among patients who have previously received CD19 targeting CAR T-cells. Other targets include, for example, ROR1, RRR1, which is uh, <laughs> part of the wind signaling pathway. Um, um, there's been some ROR1 targeting antibodies, and antibody drug conjugate is currently being developed by Merck, but CAR T cells are also um, emerging in that space, so it may be also possible to use serial CAR T cells. Um, in the future, starting with CD19 and then proceeding to other targets. And then, of course, there are allogeneic CAR T cells and 
um, off-the-shelf NK cars. With NK cars also have um, quite amazing early results, not associated with cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity. So with all of these um, advances in cellular therapies, I think we will see more of them used in therapy of CLL and possibly also in earlier lines of therapy as well. So now we are happy to answer some um, questions from the audience. Okay, so let me start with this one. Given the current evidence, would you now favor a BTK Clux combination for treatment-naive CLL with high risk? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. Um, I, I do think that the, those patients are best poised to have an optimal outcome with a combination uh, treatment approach and, and potentially even be anti-CD20 free. Uh, the thing that I'm unsure of is that we know a lot about these clonal kinetics of these uh, high-risk clones, and they do grow back faster. So once you stop treatment, they will come back. And I and for the most part, uh, limited evidence from Murano and et cetera has shown that when the clone has come back after exposure to, let's say, venetoclax, uh, they're not increasing with BCL2 uh, mutations or P53 mutations. They're not seemingly coming back higher risk. And so you might suppose you're going to get a response again. But that does concern me that uh, you get a remission and it's only two years and then the clone comes back and you've used the, the best drugs. And so I think while I do agree that high-risk CLA uh, is probably best poised to be used with combination approaches to utilize those synergies, optimize that depth of response. I think that they probably, with time, uh, will need maintenance treatment potentially. That, that's an opinion that is not based in evidence or data right now, but I am concerned about uh, letting that clone grow back and, and, and its potential inability to get as deep of a response again the second time around and potentially... Um, you know, uh, causing resistance sooner. Um, this question's for you, Alexi, and then I think we actually have one out there as well. But uh, can you comment on any differences, similarities in using CAR T cell and CLL versus DLBCL in terms of response patterns, toxicity, et cetera? Yeah, so uh, the data is still early with CAR T cells and CLL. My sense is that um, um, the treatment does not appear to be curative for the vast majority of patients. So I certainly have patients who received CAR T cell therapy two, three years ago, and now they're coming back with a slow relapse. Um, luckily, I haven't seen any um, relapses that, you know, where CLL roars back over a period of two weeks, like we sometimes see with the Brutnip. Um, uh, of course, the question is, is it curative and DLBCL? We don't know that either, really. Um, but in terms, of, um, in terms of my sense of what the toxicities are and what the, uh, what, what the efficacy is, so far I can say that the efficacy seems to be maybe a little bit lower overall than an aggressive lymphomas. Toxicities seem to be similar, uh, pretty well tolerated. Of course, many of our patients with CLL are older, over 70, so that... Um, you, we got to make an adjustment for that. Um, um, but um, otherwise, um, uh, uh, otherwise, it is a well-tolerated reg regimen. Please go ahead. Um, hi. I'm going to try and ask two questions, but I'll start with the first one. So when you use, um, say, a, a venetoclax, abinutuzumab, say, in unmutated um, CLL and realizing that it will it will probably fail in you know, a bit down the track. Are there 
are there trials comparing retreatment with Veno with moving on to a BTK inhibitor? Uh, you know, do we have any knowledge about what's best to do next? Yeah, so great question. Uh, so there is actually a study coming out. So Matt Davids uh, has, uh, Dana-Farber has come up with a study called Revenge, uh, where it is actually retreatment with VENG in patients who got VENG who progress. And so we'll know prospectively uh, how those patients do with the retreatment. Uh, that study does not have a randomized component to BTK inhibitors. With that said, from CLL14, they have extended follow-up for the study to, I think, now a decade. And uh, they, are man- they are following uh, prospectively retreatments, retreatment strategies, which drugs were used. Um, it's not mandated, unfortunately, in the study. You know, physicians will be able to do what they want, but, but they will be uh, assessing that and following it. And so we will be able to get some of this data, those patients who went to a BTK, those patients who went to a VENG, some of those patients on CLL14 actually are getting chemotherapy after progression. So uh, we'll have a nice mix to understand that. Uh, but revenge particularly will answer the question regarding retreatment with VENG. Thanks. And thank you very much. I, I, I just wonder if I can ask uh, Dr. Danlov one question about CARS. So there's the data is all very small scale so far, and but there's the sort of word out there is that that the CAR T cells there's a persistence problem, and there may be a sort of quality problem, you know, a fitness uh, sort of issue, and that that may explain the subset of patients who who are not responding well or only having partial responses and I just wonder if if you have any sort of knowledge of those data yeah so there is like you said little data so persistence might be one of the one of the issues Um, and why that is it's hard to say I think CLL well it's not I think it we know that CLL is also unique in a sense that it does come with a compromised immune system from the start. So, in fact, there was a recent publication in Blood demonstrating using single-cell RNA-seq approach that, uh, that, the, that immune deficiencies develop at the time of monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis. So, and at this point, there is quite good body of evidence that you do need this um, um, uh, fit immune environment to enhance CAR T-cell efficacy. So it is possible that because the immune environment in CLL is unfit um, uh, with preponderance of uh, immunosuppressive signals, polarization towards the TH2 phenotype, enhanced TREC presence, um, and K cells are bad, you know, myeloid, uh, increased myeloid-derived suppressive cells. So maybe be- that is one of the problems, uh, but... Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be a fairly complex, multifactorial answer. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the T-cells are abnormal from the, the get-go, but do, do you think the therapies are in any way contributing to that T-cell dysfunction? Well, so the therapies for sure would, um, like if, particularly if it's chemotherapy, but uh, the, the T-cell dysfunction is present as part of CLL, right? That's why this patient site increased risk of infections, even at the monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis stage. So that's, that's an inherent problem of CLL. Um, I have one other question written here. Have you re-challenged with venetoclax single agent after elapse and prior exposure to frontline VNG? 
I have not. Yeah, so uh, the nice thing is that many of my patients uh, with VNG that were MRD negative remain MRD negative. Uh, in relapse settings, I've had a few patients that have become MRD negative, you know, high-risk patients that were a few years out on venetoclax after that salvage and, had, and in our practice have relapsed. Uh, you can regain responses again, uh, typically in my experience, uh, but, you know, frequently these patients are very high-risk and, um, you know, I, I think the, the experience is rather limited and, and they're someone I'm concerned about ever stopping, honestly, after a chemotherapy and relapse settings of CLL, even if an MRD negative state, I am still hesitant to stop the patient off of therapy. And I do wonder if, if there, there is some pressure being left from that venetoclax if it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think VNG is uh, still a fairly new regimen. So there are basically two types of patients with whom, whom I see. One, they would have received VNG fairly recently. And if they progress within a year or two, I typically wouldn't go back to venetoclax. I would go to PTKI. I would look for something else. And the second type of patients, is they received everything, FCR, BR, Ibrutinib, and then they got VNR or VNG, and it worked for six, seven months, and then it stopped working. So... Um, in my experience, most of the Nidoclax progresses that I've seen so far are those who um, ultimately had somewhat subpar response to Venetoclax. But uh, those patients who uh, achieve initial deep response, um, they, they take a while to progress. And uh, we're a little over time, but we have just this one last question. And, and Alexi, I also have an opinion on it, but I'll, I'd like to get yours. Uh, you consider auto for your Richter's transformation patients uh, with underlying uh, inactive CLL or in a remission, or do you allo everybody? Well, so, no, I tend to not do autologous stem cell transplant and CLL. So the best data comes from, I think, I think it's CIBMTR registry where there was about 35 patients who received autologous stem cell transplant for Richter's. It's a highly selected group of patients. They didn't assess clonality, um, um, you know, re relatedness to CLL. So, um, uh, you know, in my, in my opinion, autologous stem cell transplant is not a great strategy. Most of these patients are chemorefractory at that point, and other transplant is simply more chemo. So I would for sure go to CAR-T or allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, in that setting. What yeah, I, I agree. Typically, uh, the CIMBTR as well as EBMT, I think, have concomitant data sets. And actually, one of the more recent ones I've seen actually shows auto having decent uh, outcomes in terms of PFS as well as OS uh, comparatively to ALO. With that said, as Alexi was saying, no clonality assessed. Uh, most of the patients who got auto had 66% were in CRs compared to only 30% with ALOs. Uh, most of the patients getting ALO had DEL17P, P53 disruption. So very different patient populations having similar outcomes. So it's really hard to compare. But I think you potentially can get away with an auto if you have chemosensitive disease. But again, this really is on the physician to assess that clonality because if it's a de novo DLBCL, you're going to get into a remission. You may not even need the auto necessarily. And so um, uh, clonality will matter. And I think if you can prove that's truly related to your CLL, usually those patients transforming are high risk, DEL17P, uh, progressing on targeted agents, and ALO, based on some of the data we say, I think is the best approach. Okay. Thank you very much. And um, at this time, we will close. This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. 
This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GUR 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Adaptive Biotechnologies, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharmacyclics LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC.